Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to this bonus episode of Punk Rock HR. On today's show, you will hear a live recording from a book event that I did in conjunction with Old Town Books in Alexandria, Virginia. Listen, if you need to buy a book, don't give money to Jeff Bezos. Go to your local bookstore and more importantly, go order online from Old Town Books, especially if you don't have a copy of Betting on You. This event was super fun though because it was done in conjunction with Emily's List. Emily's List is a political action committee that helps to elect Democratic female candidates who are in favor of abortion rights. So clearly something close to my heart. And I joined an esteemed panel of authors, Stephanie Shyrock, who's the former president of Emily's List, and Christina Reynolds, who's their vice president of communication. And we talked about lessons from Betting on You in their book, Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. So if you're interested in hearing a bunch of badass women talk about getting women elected into office and also ascending the ranks of the corporate career ladder and finally breaking through that stupid glass ceiling, well, I think you're going to enjoy this live recording. And once again, my thanks to Old Town Books in Alexandria, Virginia. My name is Amanda Robinson, and I am the Program and Partnerships Manager with Old Town Books. And we are so excited to have you all here with us today for our Women in Leadership panel. Our first question is for Lori. Um, Lori, loved your book. How do you recommend putting professional detachment into action? Well, thanks for the compliment. And professional detachment is this concept that's used in a lot of different environments. It's used in the government. It's used by professionals. It's used in law enforcement. But A lot of us don't talk about what it means at work and what it means for you in a professional corporate job or a creative job is that you treat your workplace like they're your client and not your family. So what that means is that you have a little bit of emotional detachment, you're emotionally regulated, and you actually say to yourself, I choose to be here, not I have to be here, not I owe it to somebody, they're like family, she's like a sister to me, but they are your colleagues, your clients, and you're showing up to solve problems. You have a professional relationship, you can have a connection, but you don't have this weird emotional thing with a lot of labor that really nobody expects of you anyway. So it's not like you can walk into work tomorrow and go, you know what, I'm professionally detached because people are gonna think you're weird. But what you can do in these conversations with your coworkers is start to slow things down. And I love the idea of taking a sip of water counting to seven before you answer and make sure you're answering from the persona of the badass professional you are and not the younger sister or not the eager colleague who wants to impress somebody. So there are a lot of ways you can practice in the small moments to nail it in the big moments. If you have a colleague who's constantly running late for a meeting, you don't have to think, oh my gosh, I know this guy's backstory and he's got a terrible life and give him all sorts of excuses. What you can do is say, you know what? You're consistently late for this meeting. After six minutes, I shut down Zoom. Let's find another time to meet. Practice in the small moments so that when something big challenges your values and you wanna have an emotional reaction to it, 
it, you've already done the work. You've practiced on your colleagues. You've practiced on your siblings. You've practiced on your friends. And you can nail it with that CEO who is testing your boundaries. I don't know. That's what I think. What do y'all think about that? Well, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book is um, one of the things that candidates need to be able to do is grow a thicker skin. And I, which I think kind of gets to your point is recognizing, you know, you you don't run for office. You don't look to make change without really feeling it and, and, and having it be part of your values. But also you can't take everything home with you. You can't take everything personally. We live in a world where certainly women online, we know the statistics tell us are abused more than men, you know, get more grief and gendered comments and comments about their appearance and things like that. And I think recognizing that you're there to do work, you're there to do a certain job, whatever that job is, and keeping that in mind, instead of trying to take on every little thing that comes at you is an important part, certainly of being a leader, certainly of being a woman in the public eye, but also it's helpful for all of us. Christina, that's such an interesting point because one of the things I try to teach in my practice is that your work is important, it's meaningful, but it is not your worth. And if you have other things happening in your life, you're passionate about what's happening in your community, with your family, with your own individual development, the things that happen at work are such a smaller piece of the pie. But when you over-index on your job and it's your total identity, those small things become really hot potatoes pretty quickly. And so remembering that your work is not your worth. You're pre-approved to have a life outside of work, to have an education, relationships, meaningful dialogues with people that have nothing to do with work just by the virtue of the fact that you were born. Work is not your worth. And when you start to really understand that, you think, all right, I'm going to have this awesome and amazing external life and bring that good stuff to my job. I get that in the workplace. When you add the desire to find that passion for change, and then all of a sudden that passion, which we hope for a lot of women is to run for office or to get engaged in that way, that becomes a different thing. Because I think you can't really look at being a public servant, which is what we're really asking members of Congress and senators and legislators and mayors and city council and all to be workers, because that's not what they are. They actually have to be public servants and finding the balance of growing that tougher skin because you got to deal with it, but you never get away from it. I mean, I talked to a lot of our our folks who say that the toughest job they've ever had, electorally speaking, has been on the school board. Everybody's got opinions about the schools. And that was before the pandemic. Everybody's got opinions about the schools and it's in your backyard. So you go to the grocery store and you walk down and grab a gallon of milk and someone's going to pull you aside and talk to you about the school board. And so there is is sort of this, like, how do you make space? It is a challenge, uh, particularly in this day and age where social media and everything is right there in front of you. And we talk to women about that and how that's part of the consideration as you're thinking about stepping up to run for office or really being even in the public eye as an executive, because the world has shifted and going away and having your own space when you choose to be in a leadership role is very hard to do in this day and age. I was so impressed when we saw Kamala Harris running, right? She's busy. Her whole identity is public servant, but she's also a runner, a mother, a wife, right? She's got all of these other aspects. And it was just so moving to me to see her call Joe Biden and say, we won, you 
know, and she's in her run gear like you and me. It was just a reminder that although you can have this all encompassing job that you're passionate about, you can carve time out for things like your individual well being or relationships. And in fact, if you do that, I know it makes the tough stuff at work a little bit more manageable. You know who you are, you know what you stand for, you know who you love. And that's the challenging part in my coaching practice. People come to me inflamed. Work is terrible. It's nerve wracking. I'm underwater. I'm overwhelmed. And it's really about remembering who you are and remembering your values, which is something you both talk about extensively, knowing your values and knowing what you stand for. What's also important and what's a shift in how women run for office now is that you do have to bring all of yourself into leadership. You know, when you sit at that table, Kamala Harris says this very well, Vice President Harris, uh, which is a nice thing to be able to say, um, says this very well when she says, you know, all of my communities come in with me when I come into, you know, she knows as the first woman is often the only woman in the room or the only black woman or the only Asian American woman that she is bringing in communities with her. We see this with our moms, you know, Katie Porter, who is a single mom of three, brings that lived experience in. Sharice Davids, who was the daughter of a vet, who, you know, put herself into community college and then into law school. And, you know, she is um, someone who brings all of those experiences in. And that's an important thing is we're kind of allowing women to talk about that now, or women are doing it on their own, thankfully. But that's something where it used to be that you didn't talk about your family because that reminded people that you were a mom and maybe you should be at home and things like that. And I think it's a really important part of making our workplaces better, of making what government does better, is bringing all those pieces of you into what you do. Our next question is mostly for Stephanie and Christina, but my five-year plan is to run for office. What is the best piece of advice you'd give to someone who is five years away from running? I love that. And I think that's that's so, first off, we're such good planners, right? Five years out, I love it. It's like, I think that is fantastic. But if there's an opportunity that comes before that, don't overlook it just in case, just because you have a plan. Sometimes things change in politics. So that's the one thing I will flag for anybody who's got a long-term plan of of running because things do jump in in the uh, way. But all that being said, first up, the book does lay out a whole series of questions that will help you walk through it uh, in Run to Win. Also at emilyslist.org, we've got this fabulous uh, training center that literally gives you the tools and the lessons along the way. There's worksheets you can download download things that will walk through fundraising and communications and the digital strategy and, and how to talk to folks and how to door knock and how are you going to have those conversations with donors and how are you going to have those conversations with voters? You know, all of that work we can do. But at the beginning, you got to sit down. If you've got family that's close to you, you got to have conversations with them because the truth is in this environment, they're a big part of this too. So I want you to talk it out, make sure that folks are on board, make sure maybe they need a little time to get on board. Maybe they don't, but talk that out. I think that's really, really important. Really think about what you're passionate about, why you're doing it. What's going to ground you on those bad days? What's the change you want to make? What the why you're doing it? Most women run because they want to get something done in particular, whether it's on climate 
or it's on schools or it's on foreign policy. I'm not trying to like, it's anything in the world, but there's usually like something is like driving that energy and centering yourself in that gets you through the hard days. And so think about that. The other thing, and I'm going to hand it over to Christina to talk a little bit more about that because she's not just a communication specialist, but also started in research uh, is you've got to take the time to look into your whole life and just make sure you know what's out there in the public and what could come out. Doesn't mean you can't run. It's all about preparation and knowing what your response is. So Christina, why don't I hand it over to you? Because this is what you a lot more than I have. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. I think, you know, we sometimes joke, we're in an era now, uh, thankfully, uh, Stephanie and I are old enough that not everything we did in college, you know, there wasn't social media, it wasn't all online, thank goodness, we didn't have digital cameras, Um, you know, when we were younger. And so people now, I think we're seeing that. What does that mean? What did you say? What did you do? What did you tweet, right? And what I like to say is there's no such thing as a silver bullet. You know, we've seen, I mean, Donald Trump got elected president and boy, there was a lot of, I know this because I worked on Hillary's campaign and I saw the the volumes of research search books. There was a lot of stuff out there. There's no such thing as a silver bullet. You just need to know, you need to know what's going to come at you. What might you have to answer for? What might you have to deal with? One example that we give in the book is, um, and then how can you, how can you turn that and talk about that? And so, you know, one great example is Stacey Abrams and Stacey, we, we talk about Stacey a lot in the book because she's a great example of so many things, but Stacey Abrams knew that her opponents were going to hit her on the volume of debt that she had. And so she came out and she wrote an op-ed that said, I have debt. I have debt because I bought a house, because I went to expensive schools, because I knew that was an important, that education was an important part of getting where I wanted to go, because I helped my parents buy a home. And you know what? All of that makes me like most Georgians. It makes me understand the life that those people are living. And, you know, Stacey is a special kind of politician that most of us could, you know, we wish we could all be. But it's a good lesson for all of us that you just need to think that through and recognize what's out there. You know, that's part of how you deal with things. And and I, I just want to add, you know, Stephanie talked about there are a lot of ways that you can prepare and you can do trainings. And, you know, we work with a lot of organizations. We partner with them on trainings. Go do that. Let yourself feel comfortable go meet more people in your community, join clubs, join boards, do all those things, but also recognize there's no secret playbook out there that everybody else has that if you, if I just study hard enough, I will know exactly what I need to know. What you need to run for office is a desire to make change in your community and a willingness to work hard and everything else you can learn. And a lot of it, you can learn along the way. And that's something I think, you know, Stephanie is always great at saying like, there is such a thing as overtraining. There's no, like you can study and study and study and you'll pass all the tests and guess what? There's no test to get into Congress or get on city council. Sometimes I mean, look at the, look at the Congress. I mean, yeah. clearly there's not a test to get into Congress. I do have a question about finances, though. I'm so glad you brought up Stacey Abrams and her debt because yeah. many of us who are working in corporate America, right? Many of the women who come to me for coaching feel constrained in their careers because they have student loan debt or they have credit card debt or a mortgage or they're single parents and they don't understand how they can free themselves up from what is essentially handcuffs right in their corporate job to run for city council or even to run for congress right and all of the time away from work with no guarantee of an income so can you talk a little bit about financial preparation for a big career change because i would imagine it's similar to changing careers in corporate america i mean it it takes a financial plan as well it really does and that and this is where some of the questions are it's really start getting harder for people because it's one thing to be talking to somebody who has a corporate job and a steady income and benefits though carrying a little bit of debt and it's a whole nother thing to be talking about somebody who's got carrying two jobs and is a single mom and 
really can't afford, let, you know, they're barely making rent as it is, you know, and a mortgage is a dream. And the truth is, in a representative democracy, we want both those voices at the table. We don't just want one set of the voices, we want all the voices at the table. We got to figure out how to do that. And so we do talk about you know, trying to get your financial house in order to the best of your ability. But we also, in this current American system, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, and I got to tell you, it's something we all need to take very, very seriously. We have built a system in this country where we are asking people, women and men, to often give up jobs for six, nine, 12 months, two years to run for office with no income, with no income. And then, right, with no commitment or promise that they're, you're going to win and have a job afterwards. And in some of these state legislatures, you hardly get paid anything. When I mean hardly get paid, some of them are just per diems. So we are asking people to serve their communities, to guide our future, and doing nothing to help them just have a basic life. And I'm not talking about folks getting rich here. Most of them aren't making it. And we lose a lot of candidates, potential candidates, through recruitment, because at the end of the day, we can't figure out how they're going to pay their bills. And it's almost worse on the backside. That is a huge problem. And that is something this country, each state, we need to start talking about. It's not a partisan problem. It happens on both sides, but it is particularly damaging to women who already make less than their male counterparts and are carrying more responsibility than their male counterparts. And so we've got to figure out a way to change the system ultimately to get the true representation that we want to get to, because it's a problem. And just to add to that, Stephanie and I talk about this all the time, because it is, you know, we have a system set up to have wealthy people in office, and that doesn't create good government if that's all you have in office. And we mentioned in the book, Luba Gretchen Shirley, who was a candidate for the House who got a landmark FEC decision that said if she had needed childcare while she was at campaign events. She could build her campaign for that, you know, that her campaign could pay for that childcare. You know, we do allow some places, some offices allow you to pay the candidate from the campaign coffers. And too often we criticize people for doing that. And so one thing I would say is for everyone here, if you think that's a problem, as I know Stephanie and I do, speak out about it. If you see someone being attacked for it, call it out, you know, that it's okay for people to make a little bit of a wage for doing a full-time job. Ask your state legislature how they do it. The other thing that we talk about is sometimes that then can determine a little of what office can you run for. Different offices allow for different things, require more of candidates, things like that. And so it is worth remembering that they're not all just federal offices. They're not all full-time campaigns. Take a look. There are many ways to serve your community. I talk about this with Republican counterparts. And yes, I do have conversations with Republican counterparts <laughs> on occasion. And I was like, we need a truce here uh, about allowing some sort of livable wages to go to candidates from their campaign coffers. I know it's very controversial in a lot of places and some in a lot of places it's just plain illegal. I think we've got to talk about just as we're talking about covering childcare and I'm so proud of Ruben in that uh, we've got to have a conversation about that. Obviously big, big systemic changes like public financing and where you don't have to spend as much time fundraising would be great. We are very far from that right now in this country because of, well, because of some Supreme Court decisions and 
in the, the current the current way the constitution is written so we're, we're challenged with that but i see some offices are easier to run for because they're part-time and you really got to do a little bit of research to think through what office to run for that you've got the ability to serve some city councils some school boards some county commissions it varies so dramatically geographically so you really got to take some time uh, maybe have some, it's a good opportunity to meet your local representative for the city council and sit down and they love talking to their constituents and ask some questions about what it's like and what it means because it really is substantially different city by city state by state and someone asked in the chat are there any solutions since we won't be changing the system anytime soon i think one is to take a look at the laws in your area you know for federal office you can accept a salary be very careful make sure you follow the law carefully there you know so you don't get into any trouble that way because that's pretty easy to do. If you have a partner, if you have kids, you know, talking to them about how the workload will balance and how that happens. We have had candidates, certainly who keep their jobs, depending on the office and things like that, or keep it for a while and work to save up as much money as they can mm -hmm. and things like that. So some of it's planning ahead and some of it's just making sure you know, I mean, this is, this is true of everything when you run for office, make sure you know the laws, but making sure that you know what governs that. And then also do doing your research and talking to other people who've done it and figuring out because more and more we do have more people. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez isn't the first person who came from a working class background. There are more and more of those now who are figuring out how to do that and it's a great thing to see. Okay, our next question. After a year where it feels like everything has been on hold, how do we find the career spark again? Any other resources besides your fabulous books that you recommend to rediscover drive and focus? How does anybody feel a spark after being away from the world for over 12 months now. I think there are signs of life out there, but the way I work with women and men to find their spark is to really ask them questions like, what do you want? What makes you happy? What's thrilling? What's daunting? What brings you joy? What's important? And this is deep work that requires you to sit and think about your own goals, your own motivation. But it's funny when people talk about what motivates them, it may be about their jobs, but it's often about the things they do outside of work. You know, it's the t-ball games that they used to participate in and go watch with their kids, or maybe they coached, or maybe it was the volunteer work they did with the local animal rescue. And I think we're so driven in our society to meld our work life and our personal life together. And if you're a public servant, that's a different conversation. But if you're in marketing or sales or in logistics or procurement, you can find that spark, that thing that you're interested in outside of work, and maybe one day turn it into a side hustle. But I would protect it and just go do it for the joy of doing it again. We can start volunteering again. Many states are opening up. There are ways to do that. And so being of service, getting out of your head and getting into the community is the best way to start to feel better anyway. And it's really an important pathway into finding joy, into finding things that are important. So I tell the story all the time. I've started fostering dogs. I'm not a dog person, but during COVID, I just needed to do something different with my brain. And what I found is that I had to watch all these videos about dog training and I was learning how to learn again. And I was also learning about human psychology, mine, other people, what motivates a dog. And it was just such a different experience. And it reminded me that I love the volunteer work that I do with animals. And actually I do my nine to five you know, job and I earn money 
because I want to do that volunteer work with animals. So for me, really reconnecting with animals was one way to remind myself of the beauty of why I do some of my work. So again, being of service is really one way you can find that spark. That's a long answer. I just wanted to talk about dogs. That's all. I'm a dog auntie. I don't own a dog, but I'm an auntie. And Christina's heard me. I'm working on it. Maybe <laughs> I, I might need some training tips, actually. Fostering <laughs> is a good pathway into dog ownership. That's all I'm going to say. So. That's a good way. You know, we talk about this in the book too, because you can run yourself into the ground. And one of the lessons I learned in my careers, it sounds like Lori, you hit this too, is, you know, I worked on a presidential campaign years ago for Howard Dean. And I remember very vividly that we just worked and worked and worked and worked. And this happens a lot on campaigns. And, you know, people, a lot of people say, what happened to that campaign? And I was like, I think we worked ourselves to death. Like at some point you're so tired, you not make good decisions. And we have to be really careful about that in every aspect of our lives. And we talk to our candidates a lot about this. You do have to make space and time to take care of your emotional self and your physical self. Because if you don't, nobody's going to. The demands will keep on coming. So, you know, for me, I'm a hiker. I'm a walk. I love to be outside. I just, it just is, it feels just, it feels so good. It's just, I'll do it. And when it's cold, I'll do it when it's hot. I don't care. I love it. It's something that's a passion for me to go out and hike, but everybody's got to find, to your point, fostering dogs, you got to find something. And that really is driving success. And at Emily's list this year, I got to say, I've been so proud of our staff and our campaign staff and how everybody really on a switch, went home, set up their new life, and for a year, and it will be longer, changed everything about their work environment, right? Everything. In fact, I go into the Emily's List headquarters every once in a while because uh, I got to grab something. And it literally looks like, you know, invasion of the body snatcher. It's like, where did the people go? It's some dystopian place where there's March 2020 calendars up and political signs of candidates. Some that made it, some that didn't. Who ran, were running a year ago. I mean, it's just this like, un but there's coffee mugs, people snowboarding boots. Uh, there's a pair of shoes there. I mean, it's just like literally poof, people just disappeared, but they have found their past. And what we had to do as leaders of the organization is really urge the staff. And we did this with our candidates too, is now that you're sitting at home, you can work all the time. Then you have no space. You've got no walls. You've got no, and you just keep going. You can't do that. And I really, really hope that we've instilled some boundaries in this environment. So when they, when folks go back to the office, that those boundaries will stay in place, but it's been hard. And I, I really worry about a lot of people who work way too many hours and you're just not as effective. You're not. The next question, the number of women in the workforce has plummeted. What do you think it will take to reverse that trend? And what is the role do you think employers can play? You know, <laughs> one thing employers could do, and I've been writing about this, I've been speaking about this, I've been talking to journalists about this, and I think this is going to start to pick up a little bit of steam going forward. We need to hire these women back. They took one for the team, the collective team, right? And no organization is going around going, you know what? Life is better with those women gone. We feel it in our workforces, you know, our work Workers are exhausted, people are depleted. That work didn't just disappear, it got reorganized throughout the entire organization. People are overwhelmed. And so we have a lot of work to do in terms of bringing those women back. And if the jobs don't exist anymore, you put them in the HR department and you ask them to work on a task force to really bring those values that are on the HR website to life. 
those well-being programs to life, those compensation programs that we talk about for equal pay for equal work, have them work with HR to bring them to life. We need to hire these women back and we need to do it before Congress compels CEOs to start to talk about this. This day is coming. There is a reckoning. So the organization that gets in front of this and hires those women back, that's the organization that's going to be a winner. That's what I believe. I think that's a huge, oh, thank you for saying that. That is a huge piece. Because, and we know that for every year a woman is out of the work workforce is a huge hit on her family's financial stability down the road. I mean, it's just, it's so devastating. And that's been so devastating in this recession with women. You know, we also need to step back in the bill that was just, in fact, signed into law today uh, to help move this forward includes a childcare credit, finally, that we're in desperate need of and needs to be in place and stay in place and paid leave and paid sick leave and all of these things that isn't just a about women that really affects women who are, they're sandwiched between taking care of parents, taking care of kids, all of this. We know still that most of this work falls on the shoulders of women and they are caregivers and we've got to honor that work too. Mm -hmm. I mean, even so much is it's as simple as this. I'm talking about vaccinations. I have a lot of friends who are nurses who got their vaccinations, teachers who finally got their vaccinations. If you're a home health care worker who goes into a home, you can get Get a vaccination. But if you are a wife, a spouse, taking care of a sick member of your family, that's different. Why? That person is a caregiver and we've got to treat everybody like caregivers. I mean, so we really need to, I hope we use this really awful, truly awful situation where we've lost so many, so many lives to step back and reorder how society works. So it is focused on the whole of a family, however you define that family. And that's what this needs to happen. And we're in workplaces need to do that. The government needs to do that. We need to all do that hand in hand. I would just add, add one thing to that, which is we need to make better policy. Part of the way we make better policy, that childcare provision that Stephanie mentioned, Rosa DeLauro has been working to get passed for literally 18 years. Fun fact about Rosa DeLauro is she was the first ever executive director of Emily's List before she ever ran for office. But Rosa demanded it because she understood the need. You know, we see that all the time where, you know, we saw when the question of whether or not maternity coverage is going to be mandated in the Affordable Care Act, there was actually a question of, well, why do I need it? I'm not going to have a baby. And Debbie Stabenow, we mentioned this in the book, had to remind her male colleague that your mother did. You know, don't you wish she had had maternity coverage? And it's something where having more women in office means we talk about things like this. And so that's why we would say run for office and help make a difference there. So I'm going to ask one last question and also let you all share any final thoughts. And then I will close it out by telling you how to get these books. All right. So last question of the night is what advice would you give to the next generation of women leaders? For our young rising leaders, oh, by yeah. the way, they're already leaders. This is what's happening. It, it is so exciting to see these next generations coming up and they have shaken off some of the fear of risk. They have broken through some of the boxes that 
previous generations were in, you know, I'm very, very well aware that I stand upon the shoulders of women, brave women who came before me, who broke down doors so I could just like walk in, which is true. This next generation and the one coming up uh, behind it, they're like, I'm going to do what I want to do it. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I'm going to change these workplaces. I'm going to change the society. And it's super, super cool. And so I would say, go for it. Do it. Don't give up on the government piece of that because a lot of them think that you can't make changes to government. That's not true. I mean, look at what's already happening. We've got Lauren Underwood, uh, who's a, the youngest African-American woman ever to be elected to Congress out of Illinois, who is fighting so hard for better maternity coverage for Black women who are needed desperately in this country because of the death rate that's going on. It's devastating. Like, that's what it, ma- it matters to be there. And Christina said that too, we need those voices there, but not just in government. Find your voice, speak it out. That's what we need. And we need it now um, more than ever. Um, and and take the risk. I would just say, we, we said it before, but I'll say it again. The only thing you need to serve your community or to make a big change is the willingness to work hard and, the, you know, and, and to learn what you need to know. Um, you don't have to start with all the knowledge. And then an understanding of why you're there and what you want to change. And the other thing, and we talk about the firsts in the book, because it can be daunting when you're looking at roles like Lauren, no black woman of her age had ever been elected to Congress. We always say if there's no one like you, if no one like you has ever been there, it's a sure sign that they need your voice there. And so I would say to young women leaders to remember that your voice is important and it's even more important if they haven't heard from anyone like you. Get up and speak out. Well, I would just like to add that we often focus on leadership in our professional lives, but I think we need more than ever leadership in our individual lives. If you are doing something really great, you are loving your life, you've just nailed it in some aspect, share the good stuff. Teach other women how to shed imposter syndrome, how to appreciate the small moments, how to get that work-life balance that you've nailed. If you are happy and you are fulfilled, don't hoard it. Be a leader and share it with everybody. That's how I've lived my life. I've learned from amazing women who are like, don't do this, do that. And that's what I've been trying to do in my coaching practice for many years. Don't do this, do that. Because when you have a happy life, you always have a happy career. The two go hand in hand. That's what I fundamentally believe. Thank you all. Any last comments or words of wisdom you want to share with the group? Well, we're now going to run Lori for office. So I need everybody who's on this, uh, watching this. <laughs> this ever. We got to think about that. Uh, yeah. I mean, not for school board. I don't want any part yeah, of that. After the talk. Yeah. <laughs> That one's hard. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> we, need, we need the best, but we do need the best people on our school boards. Uh, but we boy, do. it is challenging. It is challenging. And I'm just really honored to be part. And real, Lori, what a pleasure to be with you. I know Christine and I both just like feel honored to be with you and the work that you're doing because we're in the moment of a huge cultural change mm-hmm. for women in this country. And if we keep moving forward, we can make this change for the better. But if we're not careful, we can fall back right now, dramatically. We have to keep moving forward in every aspect of our societal work and in our lives because this needs to be done intentionally. If it happened naturally, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm -hmm. We got to keep doing the work. So thank you. 
Thank you for having this conversation tonight. I would just like to add, if you enjoyed Run to Win, please go on Goodreads and rate it, review it, really important. If you haven't purchased either one of our books, Amanda, we want to know how we can support our local bookstores. Super important. Thank you, Old Town Books. Stephanie's and my local, so we're so- Old Town Books, we're Alexandria, Northern Virginia people. Thank you. Thank you all. So we actually, we have plenty of book plates from all authors and signed copies in store. So the store is still closed currently, but we are fulfilling online orders. So the best way to order is go to www.oldtownbooks.com and search the books in the title. Again, they are run to win and betting on you. Thank you everyone so much for joining us. Thank you for our wonderful panelists for such a great and engaging conversation. Thank you all so much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show today. For more information, including show notes and links, you can head on over to punkrockhr.com. And if you like what you heard today, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.